Now, our scripture for today, uh, which is found in your bulletin, as it will also be on the screen, is from John chapter 11. It is from the story of Jesus and Lazarus, who was a dear friend of Jesus and the brother of Mary and Martha, also dear friends of our Lord. And in verse 11 of John, or verse 1 of John 11, Jesus heard that Lazarus had died. And when he finally arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus had died, Lazarus had been dead several days already. And so we pick up the reading at verse 20. Martha, Lazarus's sister, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. This is the word of the Lord. Are you, uh, are you afraid to die? Put a little differently, are, are you afraid of death? And, and if your initial response to that is no, is it the case that you don't fear because you don't think? You felt so uncomfortable in the face of death that you do your best just to never, ever go there. Don't really think about that. It's fairly easy in our society to go for long stretches without a reminder of death. We send our seriously ill to the hospitals or to nursing homes where they can die in peace, surrounded by expensive machinery and highly trained medical personnel who can keep them sometimes hanging on the brink for weeks, months, maybe years, but so often we don't see it. We go for long periods without a thought then of death, but every now and then, every now and then it jumps up and slaps us in the face. Now, that's been our last year or two, I think, for many of us. Sometimes you just can't forget. Every year the reality of death is pressed upon my consciousness to a greater degree. More and more I confront the dying and the grieving. You have to find a way. You have to find a way to cope with the fears. Some cope through a sentimental talk about heaven. Some just try to stay busy or stay buzzed. All of it is an attempt to deal with the fear. Fear of death, which is a deep, dark, terrible hole from which there is no escape. So I ask again, are you afraid of death? John Wesley was once a missionary afraid of death. And uh, he wrote this, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? Who, what is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well and believe while no danger is near, but let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say to die is gain. I have a sin of fear that when I've spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Oh, who will deliver me from this fear of death? End quote. Are you where Wesley was? Is it death that scares you, or, or is, it, is it judgment? Is it hell? Or maybe for some of you, it's neither. Hell doesn't scare you. You don't really believe in that, or you certainly don't think it's for you. The state of non-existence 
if there is such a thing. That doesn't thrill you, but it doesn't really scare you either. Maybe you're just afraid of dying, you know, the process, the pain. It's like Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Whatever your situation, I know this about you. Death does not sit well with you. There is something about the cessation of life that seems terribly wrong to you. The Bible says death is terribly wrong because you are made in the image of God with eternity stamped upon you. You're made, in fact, to be immortal. And since we feel that deep down, we talk about gaining immortality. Some can only muster enough hope to suggest that we have immortality in the good things that we do living on after us. Or maybe the idea is that you have immortality by producing children and grandchildren great-grandchildren who live on after you. Woody Allen says these are forms of a poor man's immortality, and he says, I prefer to have immortality by never dying. Yeah. Put me down for that. I don't, I don't like death, and, and I refuse to pretend that everything is just okay in spite of it. The New Testament says that ever since the sin of Adam, death has reigned. As long as death reigns, everything is far from just okay. Now, you may be wondering how, how long I'm going to go on like this. I mean, you came here today to be inspired and to be encouraged, and the music was great and all of that, and here I am talking about death. I mean, come on. But not really. I'm really not talking about death. My point really isn't about death at all. It's about fear. It's about fear. And I, I've been struck as I read the story of Christ last week there in Jerusalem, how dominant fear was and every character that's a part of that story, it seems that everybody almost who is involved in the Easter story is controlled by fear. Deb, you can take Woody down there. We've done with Woody for the day. <laughs> Not really. I got one more from him. Stay tuned for that. Everybody in the Easter story is controlled by fear. Now, just think about this. First, there were the Jews who plotted to have Jesus put to death. What was their motivation? Very clearly, it was fear. This 11th chapter of John's gospel tells of how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And boy, what a stir that created. And I want you to see the reaction of the Jewish leaders to this incredible miracle. Verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they saying? Are they disputing the authenticity of the resurrection of Lazarus? No. They are saying, whoa, if this continues, this guy performing miracles, everybody's going to be following Jesus. There's going to be a great social uproar, and the Romans won't let us run our own affairs anymore. They envision Rome squishing a Jesus-led uprising and removing the privileges previously granted to them. The priests were afraid of losing power, so they said, well, let's just kill Jesus. But Roman law didn't allow them to put a man to death, so they had to appeal to the Roman governor, Pilate, but they ran into a problem. Pilate did not want to kill Jesus. Pilate was mystified by Jesus. He was scared of Jesus. He said, I find no guilt in this man, but he, Pilate, sent him to the cross anyway. Why? 
Fear the Jews who threatened Pilate with political trouble. When Pilate said, I find no guilt in him, they said in verse 7, the Jews answered, we have a law. <laughs> and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now listen to the next verse, verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? <laughs> but Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate was seriously spooked by Jesus and tried to let Jesus go, but the Jews cried out, this is verse 12, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And, and that, that's what scared Pilate. Caesar, you know, he was like a tyrant. Nobody wanted to be regarded or accused as disloyal to Caesar. So it was political fear that led Pilate to sentence Jesus to the cross. Then too, there was the fear of Simon Peter, the leader of the disciples. After Jesus had been arrested, taken away to trial, you know, Peter hung around trying to figure out what was going on in the trial of Jesus. And, and uh, as the story goes, three times, someone says uh, to him, hey, aren't you, uh, aren't you one of his team? Aren't you on his team? Aren't you one of his boys? And all three times, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Why? Well, uh, he didn't want to be associated with a criminal. He was afraid of what others might think, what others might say. He was afraid they might come after him next. Peter was controlled by fear. Then we read about Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Pharisee that happened to believe in Jesus. Rare, but some of them did. Joseph was the one who took the body of Jesus and prepared it for burial. Joseph did not do anything wrong during this period, but I was intrigued by the description we were given about Joseph in John 19, where it says that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. I thought that sounds pretty neat, doesn't it? Secret Christian man. <laughs> uh, I saw a church sign once that in, in indicated the pastor of that church was named John Secret. <laughs> and I thought, how much fun it would be to have a name like John Secret. You know, when you called up the babysitter, you ask, can you keep a little secret? <laughs> Uh, and I figured this particular pastor probably had, a, had moved, changed churches a lot because everybody knows churches can't keep us. See. <laughs> I once met a member of his church. Yeah, there's one more. I once, met a <laughs> I once met a member of his church and asked who the pastor was, and he told me uh, it was a secret. <laughs> and I said, that's okay. I'm a pastor too. You can tell me. Anyway, <laughs> he really was a secret Christian man. Well, you know about secret Christians, don't you? Are you one of those? Shh. You, you, really, you really like Jesus. You just don't want other people to find out. Why is that? Fear? Fear of what others might think and do? That was the problem with Joseph of Arimathea. The verse I quoted says he was a secret disciple for fear of what others would do and think. The roll call of the fearful continues with the Roman guards who were placed there at the tomb of Jesus. I saw a couple of cartoons on Facebook this week of these Roman guards who thought they were gonna have an easy weekend. Go guard a, go guard a dead man at a tomb. <laughs> Uneventful weekend, uh, but no. And Matthew 28 records that on Easter morning, there was an earthquake which brought with it an angel who rolled away the, the stone that blocked the way to the body of Jesus. Matthew 28, 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like 
dead men. The guards were afraid, and they had a good reason to be afraid. Then we read of the uh, woman who came, women, I should say, who came to the tomb early that Easter morning. When they encountered the angel in the empty tomb, they too became fearful. And finally, there were the disciples. John 20 says they were holed up in secret because they were afraid that they would come after them as well. And they were in a secret place, it says, when all of a sudden Jesus appeared and he came before them and he said, peace. Everybody in this story is afraid. They were all controlled by their fears. And I can't help but think that this is the way most people function most of the time. We're just moved about by our fears, which fear is most powerful at any given moment. As a result, we cannot stand up for truth. We cannot tell others about Jesus because of the fear of persecution, the persecution generally of the raised eyebrow. That's about as far as it goes for us. We are afraid of what others might think. So we had some of our high school students up here. You remember back to high school? Do high school students struggle with uh, fear of what others think? Oh my. Teens typically want so much to look cool, to look in control, when they're actually terrified of looking bad. Parents can't do their job well either because they're so often afraid they won't be liked by their own children. And uh, some of you maybe stood here in church today and you sort of mumbled your way through the hymns because you were concerned that the person next to you might think you didn't sing so well, or even worse, that you were a religious fanatic. Fear, 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 fear. It wears on you after a while. It drives you sometimes to drink. It drives you to a pleasure-soaked self-indulgence of body and brain. It drives you to laziness or wimpiness or selfishness. So few, so few of us live our lives by principle because we live it by fear. Few live by faith because we live by fear. Few live by love because we live by fear. So what does all this have to do with Easter? Well, the Easter story can be an antidote to our fear. And it addresses even the greatest of the fears, the fear of death. That's the big one, I think. And it, uh, Easter hope can wipe away fear of even the, the big one. You'll notice as you read the story of Easter that everyone was controlled ex uh, by fear except for, <laughs> except for one character. And that, you might guess, is our Savior Jesus. Was Jesus afraid? Was he afraid of the Jews? Nah. Was he afraid of Pilate? Nah. It scared Pilate that he wasn't afraid of Pilate. Was he afraid of dying on the cross? Well, hold on there. Hold on there. <laughs> huh. I, I, believe he, I believe he was. In fact, Martin Luther said, no man ever feared death like this man. No man ever died a death like Jesus died. His was a death for others. His death was a literal hell as he paid the debt that sinners owed. In his hour in the garden, he poured forth blood and sweat and tears as he thought about what awaited him at Calvary. Jesus did have fear, but he was never controlled by it. And that's the critical difference. The Jews and Pilate and Peter and Joseph of Arimathea and the guards and the disciples, they were all controlled by their fear, not Jesus. 
They were not living by principle. They were not living by faith or by love, but by fear. Jesus was the opposite. He wasn't facing, in this case, the raised eyebrow persecution. He wasn't facing simple political loss. He wasn't just facing pain and death. Jesus was facing the wrath of Almighty God, yet he did as his Father commanded him. He gave himself over. He went to the cross, and despite the, the, cheer, the jeers and the taunts, he stayed at that cross, on that cross, until the debt was paid. And he said, to tell us, die, it is finished. Fear did not have its way, not with our Lord. Jesus had something that you could have, you can have. He had resurrection courage. Resurrection courage, that can be distinguished from worldly courage. Worldly courage is something, oh, the novelist and the philosophers might like to talk about and exhort you to have, but it's a courage that is uh, urged upon us without any real grounds of hope. It's courage in the face of despair. It's the courage that says life is meaningless. So be courageous. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that's been depicted uh, in many novels and films. One of those was an old movie called The White Cliffs of Dover. And it was a World War II film. And uh, The White Cliffs of Dover, there they are. And uh, in the end of the film, uh, Peter Lawford played the part of this World War II pilot who was shot out of the sky near the magnificent White Cliffs. Who's seen The White Cliffs of Dover? You been there? Been there? Nice, nice cliffs. <laughs> he was flying his plane and he got shot down. And, uh, and there he's going down. He's heading toward those rocky sides of the white cliffs and Lawford in a great display of existential courage, defiant to the end, spits out the, cuck, out the window of the plane at those white cliffs before he crashes. And then the movie ends and everybody in the theater says, wow, <laughs> what courage. But Woody Allen and the Apostle Paul, I think would say, what nonsense. Life is meaningless, so be courageous. Does that do anything for you? It doesn't make sense. It is no basis at all for courage. But, but if there is a life to come, if there is a God who will judge us according to our works, if there is a reward for faithfulness, then you have a basis not found in despair, but in resurrection hope for, for fearless courage. What was, the, what was it that enabled Jesus to go on despite pain and despite fear? What motivated him to put up with what he did, to stay on that cross, to suffer as he did? Brothers and sisters, it was the certainty which he had about the resurrection. Jesus said numerous times before it happened that he would go into Jerusalem, he would be opposed, he would be mocked, he would be beaten, he would be killed, but on the third day he would rise again from the dead. And I submit to you that it was his certainty that he would live again that strengthened him to live by faith and not by his fears. Hebrews 12 says to fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And that verse says it was the joy set before him, promised him by the Father. That's what enabled him to endure. The resurrection was key to Christ's courage, and it will be key for yours because it eliminates that critical fear of death, eternal death. When you know the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, you can spit into the face of death. You can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? <clears throat> a three-year-old can learn John 3.16. That's a nice verse to memorize. But let me tell you, if you understand it and trust it, you have in that simple verse the basis of facing life and death without fear. 
So why don't we say it together? Do we have it? Read it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall perish but have eternal life. That is the promise Christ has affirmed to us when he himself returned from the dead. He showed us that he holds the keys of death and hell and so is able to keep his promises. The first thing Jesus said after his resurrection was, do not be afraid. And listen to this from John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's the promise. Take courage, because I have overcome the world. Because life is meaningless, take courage. No, because I have overcome the world. Listen to what was prophesied by Zacharias just before the birth of the Lord. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Then verse 74, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him Without what? Without fear. That to me is a fascinating verse because it speaks of God's purpose and the coming salvation through Jesus. Jesus came, it says, that we might serve God without fear. And that is fantastic. No longer need we be enslaved by our fear of man. No longer need we be enslaved by our fear of evil powers. No longer need we be enslaved by our fear of death. We have courage through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus. In a rare trip to the theater many years ago, I saw the, uh, the movie Braveheart. Uh, remember, I was sick, felt terrible, but I went by myself to a matinee and uh, stared at the bottom corner of the screen for a good bit of the movie because I'm not into the graphic violence, see? <laughs> But the story that movie depicts is awesome. Braveheart brought you face to face with death, that's for sure. But it was also a magnificent portrayal of how differently humans respond to the threat of death. For some, death becomes the ultimate evil to be avoided at all costs. Truth and integrity and conscience, they're all negotiable in the face of danger. For such as these, fear has its own way. And listen, if this life is all there is, if this is it, then I understand that. If there is no resurrection, then hang on to this life at, at, at any cost. But, but if there is something beyond, if there is a judgment, if there is a promise, if there is an eternity, then we are free to live as men and women of principle and conviction and character. We are free to face the onslaught of evil and say, no, regardless of the cost to ourselves. So the Scottish patriot William Wallace, as portrayed in the Braveheart movie, was a man who could see beyond the grave because of that he saw that there were things worth dying for. Do you believe that? Is there anything worth you laying down your life? Recent polls show that most college students in our country Answer that in the negative. No, there's nothing I can think of for which I would give my life. What a pity. What a pity. 
my favorite line from the Braveheart movie is when he resisted the urging of a friend to take some poison that would kill him more peacefully and less painfully than the torture that he was destined to endure otherwise. And he refused it, saying, every man dies. Not every man really lives. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. A life shackled by fear, that's no life. And until you have something worth dying for, you have nothing worth living for. Not really. You watch movies like Braveheart, like Saving Private Ryan or Gettysburg, and you wonder, what is it that compelled these men to stand across a field from each other and run at each other with swords and spears with really minimal hope that they're going to survive the experience? Where does that kind of courage come from? Where does the courage come from to face your addiction honestly? Where does the courage come from to take a stand, a hard stand for truth? Where does the courage come from to face cancer with grace? For the Christian, it comes from Easter. It comes from resurrection courage. So one more passage and we'll be done. Acts chapter 4. And to understand Acts 4, you need to know that in Acts 3, Peter and John had just given new legs to a man who was lame by the power of God. God gave him the new legs, but they prayed for him that God would do it. And after they did this incredible miracle, you know what they did? Well, of course, they took opportunity to collect an offering. Not really. Are you awake? Huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, they took opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus. But the Jewish leaders were not pleased. And so we read there, verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, not in a good way, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Did you follow all that? I mean, here are two worker-class Jewish Christians dragged in front of the rulers and the elders and the scribes, the high priest, and all his family. If there was ever a gathered a group to intimidate any Jew, this was it. They were placed, it says, in the center of the crowd and challenged to defend what they had done and what they had said. So we read on. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, keep moving on, by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. <laughs> he kind of threw that phrase in there. He's not mincing words here, is he? whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be 
saved. And so in just a few short verses, Peter told them they had crucified the Son of God, that Jesus was risen from the dead, that they had foolishly rejected their Messiah, and that salvation belongs exclusively to those who follow this Jesus. This is the same Peter who weeks before had denied even knowing him. Or was it the same Peter? <laughs> nah, it is now a Peter full of resurrection courage. And you see the response of the Jewish leaders. They were blown out of their seats as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. That is, their courage was not based in any intellectual superiority. Oh, no. As they observed that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were, what's the next word? Amazed. And began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You, you spend your time with Jesus. Let me warn you. You spend time with Jesus, you're going to lose something. Your fear. You will come to live by principle. You will come to live by faith. You will come to live by love. And no longer by fear. You get it? Do you want to be set free from sin? Do you want to be set free from your guilt, from your fear? Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if you're here today and without a clue what Jesus taught and did that will set you free from your guilt and free from your, friend, from your fear, ask a Christian friend, or feel free to ask me. I would be delighted to talk with you and share more with you about the life-changing message of the risen king. I'm excited about that message because my reasons for fear died with Jesus on that cross. And when he rose again, they were buried forever. Praise God. And let's pray. <laughs> so Lord, we have said, oh, what a morning. Uh, and in so many ways, it, it is the, the morning of all mornings when Jesus in victory over death, came and demonstrated that he is our conquering king. <laughs> and that testifies to us that all the reasons that the world and the devil gives us to fear no longer make any sense. Our eternity is secure when we put it in the hands of our Savior. And so, Lord, we pray that you would this day deliver us from those fears that push us and pull us and restrain us and drain us of our joy. Deliver us from those fears, whatever they may be, each distinct to ourselves. God, we lay them at your feet and we embrace instead your pardon, your peace, your power, and the privilege of calling Jesus our risen King. Lord, we pray that you provoke the hearts of some here who don't know him today, that they would seek to discover him who alone can rescue us from fear. And may we all serve him without fear all the days of our life and sing together of his grace forever in the glory to come. Thanks for the privilege today of enjoying a slice, a foretaste of that glory. Be with us as we wrap up now and as we depart in Jesus' name. Amen.